Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, I'm guest host Shona Thompson. How can you protect yourself from AI if it's coming for your job? There have been a few attempts to market magic mushrooms in the same way as cannabis, but it's very different. There are studies being done on its efficacy as a treatment for things like mood disorders, and we'll find out more. And where are things with COVID? Another new variant is out, and there are some recommendations to get a booster this fall, the seventh in the series. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This topic has been on my mind for some time now, artificial intelligence and its implications in the workplace. Writers and actors are on the picket lines right now, in part to battle the use of AI in possibly replacing their jobs. Producers want to, among other things, be able to take the likeness of a background actor and use it in perpetuity any way they want. The CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nandela, responded to some concerns about AI recently. One thing that I find very, very good about uh, the way the dialogue is happening this time around, right? So it's just not about tech optimism. It's about thinking about technology and its opportunities, but also uh, the responsibilities of the tech industry and the broader unintended consequences and how we mitigate them long before uh, they become sort of out there in the society, whether it's the standards. It's not even just principles in the abstract, but in the engineering process, even the design choice, Elena, to the we've started, which is putting human in the center. It's a design choice. Uh, So I think us taking all those into consideration and doing some of our very best work to capture the opportunity and mitigate the unintended consequence, I think is what's our responsibility. Well, to find out more about what the use of this technology could mean, we have Dr. Nita Chinzer, an Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Management with the University of Guelph, joining us. Uh, Dr. Chinzer, thank you for your time. Thank you. It's a very interesting and timely topic. Well, let me just start by saying I am a human being. I am not a computer-generated interviewer. (laughs) It would be very hard for me to tell, so I'm really happy you said that. I'm not fully sure I believe it, though, so that (laughs) also gets into, you know, how much honesty is out there. Yeah, wait for it. The realization Mm -hmm. about me being a human is going to be landing (laughs) very, very shortly. Um, You know, an individual can just let their imagination run wild about artificial intelligence. You know, we've seen depictions in movies and TV. Usually it's very dark and stark. Skynet, The Matrix, even Star Trek, the original series had storylines about Mm -hmm. uh, the evils of computerized overlords. What is the reality of AI? What should the average person know about this? Well, right now, I think AI is in a hype cycle. And a lot of that had to do with chat GPT coming out and being accessible to all. But AI has been operating in the background for about 20 or 25 years now. So we've come to a point where now it's becoming accessible to all. But companies have been using this for screening employees, for looking at x-rays, for creating content. For example, BuzzFeed is using AI to create content for their quizzes and some of their content. Uh, We have Newsweek magazine, which sometimes uses um, company earnings reports. And they use Quill to summarize and paraphrase what those earning reports do. So we've seen a lot of changes, for example, even in journalism because of AI. But now it's becoming publicly available. So now it's in the spotlight with people saying, how is this going to threaten me? And then we have companies like Goldman Sachs coming out saying, you know, 18% of jobs are going to be lost. But still two out of every three jobs are going to be changed because of AI. And that's, that uncertainty has got people very nervous. Do you think one of the issues is that we've referred to everything 
as as AI as artificial intelligence, like it is already one big conglomerate with all these different divisions to it. Um, And and is that an appropriate way to think of it? Sure, but there's tests to see if something is AI. So if we go back to like the 1980s when automation became huge and manufacturing was really stressed out and they're like going to lose all of these jobs, manufacturing was very much about programming. So we told a machine what to do and it could only do that thing. AI is about learning machines. So we tell a machine generally how we make decisions or we show them decisions and it determines the pattern. And then over time, it tweaks the pattern of decisions. So we have moved away from you know automation to AI. There's very clear differences there. And unfortunately, AI, that machine learning is accessible. It's being used everywhere. We're seeing it in GPS systems and self-driving cars. We have been seeing it really take over. So the conversation is no longer about are we just using robots to do human work? It's are we using, are we using the technology to think for humans? And the answer is yes. We are now replacing human thinking with technology thinking. And the idea is that maybe that technology is going to be faster. It's going to understand more decision rules. Human cognitively can, o- can only understand like 11 factors at a time. So when you're making a decision on average, you're looking at 11 considerations, whereas the technology can look at 367 or however many it wants. So yes, we are replacing human thinking, which is the scary part for some people. But one of the things that it won't replace is human emotion. And and making, you know, there are situations that require human emotion to be a factor in that. Yes. So we do have these three factors that are considered to be the things that protect jobs from full automation, uh, full AI. And one of them is like, what's the interaction with the human being? Because you're right. We can't replace a nurse's compassion as she's giving bad news to a family regarding someone or as she's trying to sympathize with somebody. We can't replace that with a computer or with AI. Um, so one is, that you know, what is the amount of human interface? The second is how creative is the job? So does it require just amalgamating all information or is it creating new information? Because AI right now isn't able to catch up to the speed with which humans are being creative and innovative. And the third factor, so it was innovation, creativity, was um, how, like, how volatile is your environment? AI assumes that the past is a really good predictor of the future, but we see pivots happening all the time with these environments. You know, the economy is changing, the housing market is changing, everything's changing. And it really can't use the past to predict the future anymore. So those are the types of conditions, three conditions that protect some jobs from automation. But yet they're saying other jobs will be lost to automation. We're speaking with Dr. Nita Chinzer, who is an associate professor of leadership and organizational management with the University of Guelph. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about, um, you know, people being replaced. Uh, It was the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development that Uh did a survey. It said about 60 percent of workers are afraid of being replaced um, and about uh, uh, half of those, about 27 percent of the workforce, likely will be replaced. That is a radical shift in our society, probably even more dramatic than the Industrial Revolution. Quite likely. And I mean, when we go back again to the automation we saw in manufacturing in Canada, up until that point, 80% of the jobs in Canada, 70 to 80% of the jobs were in manufacturing, and only 20 to 30% were in services. But over time, we saw a shift to a service-based economy, and we became a knowledge center. And now only 20 or 30% of our jobs are in manufacturing. And 70 to, you know, uh, 
60 to 70 are in, in services. So we might see like a big transformation about how people are getting employed, where they're getting employed. We've already seen that too, with companies not taking responsibility for developing their employees. They're doing a lot of gig work, contract work, temp work. So the entire employment relationship is destabilizing. And this is just one more one more hit for employees. Exactly. I mean, what happens to those people? Is AI going to come up with a solution to how they're going to live, clothe, feed themselves, house themselves? Well, there's two schools of thought. So one is this will be very helpful in an environment where we've already got a massive labor shortage. So we know, say, in healthcare, we've got a massive labor shortage and we can't hire enough doctors. But on average, the general practitioner spends about 13% of their day taking notes. If we could automate that, then we could take that down to maybe 3% of their day. So therefore, you know, they're not really replacing workers. They're filling vacancies that have been vacant and like structurally damaging to our society. But then we have other industries, for example, journalism and what we're seeing with the Hollywood strike, where these people are now saying, wow, I'm not going to be getting paid for my intellectual property, for my creativity, for my brand, for my identity anymore. What do I have to do? to make sure that I actually get compensated for the efforts that I'm putting in for my brand and for my identity. And that's where the ethical balance and challenges are happening right now. So people are saying, you know, what am I supposed to do? And the truth is that we all have to be engaged in continuous learning. We have to learn new systems. There's big training happening right now in some of these companies where they're taking call center reps and they've made all the call centers AI and they're switching them to, you know, almost like personalized sharp shoppers in retail or people who were like enhancing the experience for the client. And they're re-pivoting those skills as opposed to saying, oh, let's dump all of our call center reps and put them out into the open market. Some companies are taking responsibility, saying I'm going to need people in this other space. So let's move them. Unfortunately, like Elon Musk, he got rid of all of his Facebook subscriber group because he realized Facebook was flatlining and, you know, the subscriptions weren't going up. And instead of retraining them on a different technology, he just got rid of them and laid them off. So we may see some companies reacting with mass layoffs and some companies reacting with pivoting and training their employees. As an individual employee, I wouldn't stay static right now. I try to learn something new and keep myself relevant. Okay. What should we be learning? I think we should be learning a lot about data management. So information management and data management are critical. So we've known that when we move to computer-based skills, it's all behind the scenes, it's all numbers. It's all just data. It doesn't, it'll put a number on happiness. It'll put a number on a customer's preference. It puts numbers on everything. So we can learn about data management, but what's going to be critical to set us aside is actually the soft skills. It's going to be how to navigate uncertainty, how to have, have hard conversations, how to motivate an employee who's demotivated, how to understand the signals about somebody who may need perhaps career coaching, how to, you know, how to be a better human being. So actually emphasizing that human to human connection, which unfortunately a lot of people plateaued or actually lost during the COVID pandemic. And getting back to the humanity, I think, will be a big role in protecting you from being the person who is then you know, the victim if your organization is going through layoffs. You'll have a skill that's hard to learn, um, important, and can't be automated. Well, you know, there was uh, some talk by, I think it was the Kids Help Phone. Um, Mm -hmm. They were talking about using AI, but strictly for analytics. But it got me to wondering and to thinking as to whether or not, uh, you know, at times when you don't have enough staff, you don't want that phone line to not be answered if somebody's in crisis. But would um, an automated therapist 
really fit the bill. I mean, you want to know that you're speaking with somebody who, with empathy, understands your situation. So we've seen customer service roles become automated and client um, evaluations of customer service provided by AI versus humans is actually higher for AI because AI doesn't carry the baggage all day long. It doesn't carry the baggage of, you know, 10,000 people, not 10,000, but like 10 people yelling at it in the morning and then just the roughness of their own day that most of us walk around with. So in customer service, the rankings are higher when someone calls to complain. But I would be very careful about something like the child's help hotline because ethically too, the AI system only knows what we've actually programmed it to do and what it learns. So we lose track of its decision rules quite quickly. There's also the problem of garbage in and garbage out. Maybe when we programmed it, we didn't set it up for, say, ethnic differences. So if somebody calls in and in their subculture, it's, you know, the family structure works this way and in another subculture, family structure works that way, and we're not sensitive to those differences, we might not be able to identify it. And the other thing we can look at is, say, 911. So I know they've looked at playing around with AI with 911. And when someone calls in, they might say something like, hi, I'd really like to get a pizza. And it's an abused woman calling out for help. But the person on the other end understands that tone and says, oh, this isn't a wrong number. This person, you know, is looking for help. And they ask certain questions like, if you need help, say the word pepperoni. If you don't need help, say the word vegetarian. And an AI won't be able to pick up on those nuances. So I'd be very careful about using this in crisis situations where the potential for harm is just too damn high to the individual. Yeah. You've given me a lot more to think about. It's been a really interesting conversation. Yeah, definitely. I'm welcome to uh, continue the conversation, but I think we'll be hearing a lot more about it. But we have to remember there's, you know, there's risks and there's there's benefits. You know, there's two sides to every coin. And at the end of the day, ethics and morality is something that, you know, the people who are putting up the flags, they're saying we have to be very careful with this. I support that. And I do think that we have to think about this from an ethical lens. What happens to the kid who falls through the cracks with that child's help hotline when AI fails it? Absolutely. That's a big risk. Ethics would be a very interesting adjunct to this conversation. So perhaps that'll be the focus next time. Thank you for your time today, though. Have a great day. Bye-bye. We've been speaking with Dr. Nita Chinzer, Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Management with the University of Guelph about AI and protecting your job and your future. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Silas Ivan is being investigated as a possible treatment for mood disorders and for PTSD. There's already been some promise on that front in limited studies, but we're still a long way from it being approved or even prescribed. In the interim, there have been some pop-up operations that are trying to sell magic mushrooms in much the same way as cannabis for recreational use. Well, one was set up and closed almost as fast in Brantford. That's happened as well in Hamilton and in London, as well as other centers across both Ontario and in Canada as well. On the line with us now is Mitchell Osak, who's the managing director of Quanta Consulting. And uh, Mitchell, thank you, first of all, for joining us today. I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Shona. And as a basis for this conversation, so that our listeners understand where you're coming from, what is the involvement of Quanta Consulting with Silas Ivan? So my company uh, consults on, on a strategy and an operational basis to psychedelic and cannabis companies, both in Canada and around the world. So you consult on marketing Silas Ivan for recreational use in storefronts? Uh, both recreational and medical use. In the case of psychedelics, 
it's entirely possible that if it becomes legal, it'll become legal as a medical substance and it'll go through the uh, traditional medical big pharma channels in Canada and the United States. Well, psychedelics were investigated at one point as um, a a possible medication, uh, more sort of a hit and miss, if I recall correctly, from doing some reading about the 60s. They, They wanted to know what it would do so they would come up with ideas for how it might be employed in terms of, uh, of it being a medicine. That's correct. Um, psychedelics um, is a grab bag of many dis- different substances, not, not just psilocybin or magic mushrooms, as many people would know them, but also things like LSD, ayahuasca, mescaline. And, and many of those drugs and compounds are naturally occurring. I mean, they've been around and consumed for thousands of years. But in some cases, like LSD, they were synthesized in a lab, and I believe LSD was synthesized at Harvard University in the 1960s. So where are we now in terms of the research that's being done specifically on psilocybin? I know that there are some studies in Canada. There have been some studies, although very limited, in the United States. Yeah, there are limited uh, real pharmaceutical-type studies. I would uh, consider them sort of phase one and phase two studies, Phase two studies are actually quite important because they're measuring not only efficacy or the performance of the uh, therapy, but as well as any risks associated with that. Following phase two, we get to literally phase three studies, which are, which are really about, you know, how much to prescribe and so on and so forth. So we are in the first period, but we're nearing the end of the first period, and we can sort of see potentially which substances will get Health Canada and FDA approval. So it's beginning to look like these products will be available. It's hard to say when, but I would foresee, um, in the case of psilocybin and MDMA, which is ecstasy, I can see them easily legal and prescribed within two to three years. Okay, one of my concerns about all of this um with psilocybin and the possibility of magic mushrooms being sold in storefronts, it is currently still illegal. Um, and anytime there's been a, a pop-up storefront operation, it has been um, closed fairly quickly. Um, but one of my concerns is people self-prescribing if they have some sort of a mood disorder, because there's so much that isn't known about it. If you already have depression or anxiety or, um, you know, some people use, uh, it's an antipsychotic, it's called Seroquel. Um, it is sometimes prescribed off-book for people who have insomnia. Mixing a psychedelic with an antipsychotic, we don't know what's going to happen with that. You are absolutely right. Uh, my company doesn't do any consulting to illegal operators. And those are the, the storefronts that you're talking about, not only in Ontario, but in British Columbia and other parts of Canada. We, as well as the general medical community, as well as the government, do not endorse in any way the recreational use of these substances. However, they are available in certain parts of the world, like the Netherlands, for example, in very limited use cases. At the end of the day, um, these substances have are risky to certain people under certain conditions, and their use shouldn't be taken lightly and certainly not self-prescribed. The problem is, as you probably know, is that many of them have been consumed for a long, long time. So there is a certain conventional wisdom in some circles that, you know, they could be taken safely. But as you correctly point out, certainly not for everybody.
No, because, I mean, you know, also when people have uh, certain mood disorders, they may be on a number of different medications. And one of the ones I'm thinking about for uh, anti-anxiety is Effexor. And I know in the reading that I've done about it, if you are going to come off Effexor, it has to be done incredibly gradually. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at right now how we think, uh, like psilocybin, and, and ecstasy will be prescribed, it will all actually be psychedelics as a service, which means that it will be very unlikely that you'll be taking it without a trained healthcare practitioner beside you, guiding you through the whole treatment experience. So insofar as these are very powerful and, and efficacious substances, they shouldn't be taken in isolation, whether illegally or even if they're available illegally taken by somebody. Well, you know, when you're talking about that, you, you reminded me, and just uh, so our listeners know, we're speaking with Mitchell Ozak, who is the CEO of Quanta Consulting. Um, there was a study that was done in Ohio. I think it was Ohio State University, very limited study, 26 participants who were all uh, war veterans suffering from PTSD. It was a very controlled study. They were on an in-resident basis. It was also done in uh, concert with talk therapy, uh, and no other stimulants or uh, drugs of any kind were involved in this. Um, And uh, they did show some limited progress in terms of helping to treat PTSD. Um, But again, I think that this all needs more study, as you quite rightly point out. Mitchell, we're going to have to go, but I really appreciate your time and your insight on this topic. Thank you, Shona. Have a great day. Mitchell Osak is the Managing Director of Quanta Consulting. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are reminders, though, that COVID is still out there. It's still highly contagious. It is still evolving. And as we hear from Don Kelly, there's a move to get you to roll up your sleeve for a seventh COVID shot. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization is recommending shots this fall if it's been at least six months since your last dose or COVID-19 infection. It says the booster doses will be new formulations updated to target more recent immune evasive variants. NASI continues to strongly recommend that anyone five and older who hasn't yet been vaccinated should get a primary two-dose series of an mRNA vaccine. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. Well, it's a good time to take a look at where things are right now and what may be coming down the road, not only for COVID, but for the fall cold and flu season as well. Joining us is Dr. Don Bodish, professor in the Department of Medicine and the executive director of the Firestone Institute for Respiratory Health. Don, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Shona. So what is the latest variant in COVID? Well, right now in Canada, our dominant variant, there's a couple, but they're in the XBB1 family, which is a subset of the Omicron uh, family of variants. So that means it's highly contagious. It also means that our original vaccines, which were designed against the original strain, which is now extinct, um, are less effective than we would like, ideally. So the recommendation from the National Advisory Council is that we should be using the newly approved uh, vaccines that are specific for the XBB1 family to help keep us protected this cold and flu season. I'm glad you mentioned that that first strain of COVID 
is now extinct because I was wondering, you know, with all mm-hmm. of the different variants that are out there, does does it, you know, evolve and eliminate the the previous? In- yeah, no, it's a great question. So one of the things that was so surprising about those early waves we had, we had the first, which we call the original or the ancestral uh, one, which is the one that hit us in March 2020. And then there were these rapid takeovers by these variants. We had Alpha, we had that Gamma variant, we had the Delta variant. Uh, but then the Omicron seemed to be able to outcompete them all. And so many of those variants are extinct in the world. There's some pockets in the world where there might be a little bit of Delta left. Uh, there's some of the early Omicrons circulating in different parts of the world. But those really early ones that first came to Canada are nowhere to be found anymore. So it's a it's an interesting and evolving situation. It means that we are moving to a situation where things are going to look more like the influenza, where we'll have to update vaccines periodically. Uh, these mutations are still existing. We know that this virus can jump between humans and animals, so it's unlikely to ever go totally extinct, even if the population was totally vaccinated. And, of course, there's parts of the world where vaccination rates are very, very low, so there's lots of virus around. So I'm sorry to have to report that this is probably going to be a virus we're going to live with for the rest of our natural lives, and we'll need to keep up to date on our vaccines to minimize its impact on us. One thing, and I I know we've had this conversation before, but one thing that I'm still trying to really wrap my head around, at least with cold and flu, it seems as though when it evolves, it evolves into something that isn't going to uh, kill you unless you have certain risk factors. Mm -hmm. Um, But that doesn't seem to be the case with COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly in the early stages of the pandemic, there was a lot of hope that we'd get to something like a seasonal coronavirus. So we have these seasonal coronaviruses, which are common cold viruses. And interestingly, they are associated with some some rare bad things that happen in people. For example, those seasonal coronaviruses could cause loss of taste and smell. But in general, they were just something we lived with and we didn't worry too much about. They killed some old people. They sent some children to hospital, but they were well within what we could we could tolerate. But COVID looks like it's going to be more like the uh, influenza, which means that uh, some people will be okay, some people will have long-term health consequences, and some people get really seriously sick. And there's no sign that it's evolving to become more of a seasonal cold type virus uh, that we can just sort of live with without ever having to think about again. So that brings us to the recommendation for a, I mean, it is the seventh booster shot in mm. the series. If you missed four, five, and six, you can still jump ahead and get seven. That's right. So the thing that I think is important is we move away from counting the number of vaccines we have because there's never going to be a magic number where you're done. And instead, we start moving towards thinking about how recently we've been we've been uh, vaccinated. We know that uh, protection from a symptomatic infection doesn't last more than six months. And the hope is that if this virus uh, moves towards a cold and flu type season, which is about six months, that we can really get organized, get people vaccinated like we do for the flu, and that'll carry them over. Now, having said that, COVID does not seem to follow a traditional uh, seasonal pattern. Uh, So whether it ever settles into that way, we don't know. But the important thing for people to be remembering will be to think about how recently they've been vaccinated. And as well, your best protection is in sort of the first three months of your vaccine. So in a perfect world, if you time that when the waves and the rates start going up and you're most likely to be infected, you'll get the most bang from your buck. You'll be protected during the time when you're most at risk.
We're speaking with Dr. Don Bodish, who's professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University, also the executive director of the Firestone Institute for Respiratory Health. Um, when we go around to the uh, to get the next COVID shot, I'll stop numbering them. I will take mm-hmm. your advice. Mm-hmm. Um, but will there? Be, I know there was some talk about um, having like one shot that would do COVID and flu. Yeah, is yes, that, is yes, that still the thinking? A number of companies have this in trials. One of the wonderful things about the mRNA vaccines is it does look like you'll be able to combine multiple uh, viruses. And none of those are currently approved in Health Canada, although research is ongoing. And I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised if we are seeing that in our next cold and flu season. Uh, So there should be some good combinations. There's also a new RSV vaccine that's been approved, although not in the pharmacies yet. Um, for older adults, uh, which is, was, as you will remember last year, we heard a lot about RSV being really problematic. So the, the, I guess if there's a bright side to this pandemic, it me, means it's really advanced our research in infectious disease. And we're learning a lot more about how to combine these vaccines to hopefully create eventually a one-shot cold and flu protection period. What are we learning about the coming cold and flu season? I know that uh, it's underway in Australia right mm-hmm. now. Are there any indicators from that of what might happen here? It was a bad year in Australia, unfortunately. So one of the things that we have this advantage in the Northern Hemisphere is we our cold and flu season starts just as theirs is ending. And traditionally, we've looked at the Southern Hemisphere to understand which flu strains might be circulating and then create our vaccines uh, towards that. And now it looks like we can also do that to a certain degree with COVID and perhaps with RSV as well. So their cold and flu season this year was particularly bad for influenza. They had multiple strains of influenza circulating that were problematic in young people especially, or young children and older adults. They had a pretty bad year for COVID with this XBB1 family of variants. They did not have as bad a year for RSV as we had last year, so perhaps we'll get a bit of reprieve there. But we will have an advantage that they did not have because we will... um, the goal is for us to get those XBB1 specific vaccines for COVID prior to our cold and flu season. And for them, they only are becoming available post their cold and flu season. So by looking, using them as our crystal ball and looking towards the future, I would say it's a really good year to get up to date on your flu shot and definitely get that COVID booster. Uh, and that kind of brings us around to some basics. I mean, I know people really hated the expression, the new normal, mm-hmm. but the new normal may be masking, hand washing, taking mm-hmm. precautions. Absolutely. So there is not a healthcare system in Canada that's not under strain now. You've covered stories about ERs closing and about the strain on our various healthcare system. And this is in the low times. This is when infectious disease is not very high at all. So you can only imagine what this is going to look like during the cold and flu season. We're going to see a lot of people going to the doctors and hospitals and overwhelming that system. The new normal is problematic because we already had a strained and stressed healthcare system, and now we have people leaving it, we have workforce shortages, and we have the emergence of this. So, you know, as much as we want to enjoy the good times in the summer, we also have to think about what we can do to protect healthcare for all of us during cold and flu season. That'll be making different decisions, maybe about how and where we socialize, wearing a mask indoors, and certainly in a hospital setting, and getting up to date on our vaccines to help out. 
I know there must be people out there who hear me talking about masking and they're just rolling their yeah. eyes. Hopefully they're not driving at the same time. But, um, I mean, you don't want this virus. You don't no. want the after effects because there are so many question marks about how it's going to impact each individual. That's exactly right. So we know that there's this phenomenon of long COVID where people just don't get better and some of them stay really unwell for a long time. They have neurological issues, brain fog, they have breathing issues, they have all sorts of issues that prevent them from working. And in fact, there was an estimate a few months ago that 15% of our labor shortage was due to people's health effects post-COVID, be it uh, directly or, or indirectly. And then, of course, there's the things you don't see. So we know that COVID can damage the heart, and there's been uh, lots of documentation about increased risks of heart attacks and strokes, even in people who think they've recovered. So we also know that one infection doesn't protect you forever. In fact, the period of protection you get is pretty short. So just because you had an easy go around last time doesn't mean you're going to have an easy time your second time with COVID and doesn't mean you're at no risk for any of those long-term health issues. COVID is a tricky, sneaky virus that undermines your immune system's yeah. best efforts. And so that's why these health issues are so prevalent in it. Don, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Anytime. My pleasure. Dr. Don Bodish is a professor with the Department of Medicine at McMaster University and the executive director of the Firestone Institute for Respiratory Health. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.